Welcome to Help From Future Self. Howdy, Archons. Welcome to another episode of Help From Future Self, the conversational Keyforge podcast by and for Keyforge friends. I am Scuzzy Gruen. I am also Alex, and I am joined by two very good Keyforge friends of mine. We've got SC Steele. Hello, hello. And Boulevard Blake. Yo, what's going on? Not too much. Interesting topic this week. One that seems like we would have done before this, and I was so convinced when when Blake pitched it that there's no way we couldn't have done it, that I went and searched through all the old episodes, <laughs> and uh, I couldn't find an example of it. So I, wow, I guess- thanks for believing me. No, no, I just, I, I could not believe it. I could not believe that we had never talked about the mulligan and what leads to the mulligan. And this is a, a topic that seems very like sort of classic Keyforge in a way, like the kind of thing you would have heard in a very early episode of a Keyforge podcast. So it's really surprising to me that we've ever done it. But also, it's one that has a lot of different angles of attack discussion wise. And I think. Being a person with a super analytical mindset and a person who's thought a lot about the game and the way the game is played and strategies towards the game, as we all do to certain degrees, but certainly as a person who has given this a lot of thought already, Blake, you're going to be leading the discussion. So why don't you why don't you get us kickstarted here? Let's talk a little bit about the mulligan. This actually all came about because we were planning an episode that uh, is going to actually be coming out next week. And Sydney was proposing something within the purview of what the topic is for next week. And it led to this little discussion between her and I in our chat going back and forth. And then I kind of <laughs> just dawned on me. I was like, hold on a second. I'm like, I feel like this is an episode in and itself. The fact <laughs> that we're going back and forth so much on on this and just one aspect of what a mulligan is that we need to have a discussion about it. So we pivoted today to this mulligan discussion. And so a mulligan is basically the one thing that exists in the game that is a decision that has to be made before any cards are played, before you're aware of anything your opponent is planning on doing or has done for that matter. And you have to make that decision with only the information of your own deck and the cards you've drawn from said deck. Mm -hmm. So as everyone knows, you start the game with either six or seven cards, whether you're going first or second. And based on what you see in your hand, you have the luxury of getting to toss it back, shuffle your deck, and draw another hand with one card less than you previous had. That is what the mulligan is. Now, what caused our discussion to start going off was really the idea of the 2-2-2 two, two, two hand but when you're going first, I think that was like a really big thing. So Sydney said the 3-2-2, which for me is basically a 2-2-2, two, 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 but you're going first. You said you would keep that under certain circumstances. Is that correct? Absolutely. So under the context we were talking about, the restrictions to what would be in your hand in that 3-2-2 situation, I would absolutely keep it. I think what interested me most and, and really sparked my my interest while we were talking about it was you mentioned like the the auto mulligan. And I, I personally think like we drew the line completely differently at like what constitutes auto mulliganing. I mean, I would look at the hand and I might decide to mulligan it. I might not. And you were like, nope, that one's gone for me. <laughs> Yeah, so Alex, how do you fall on the the three two two? Because I mean, I guess the 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 way we can approach this is that 
you could choose for your first card to play a card from one of the two two houses, and then you're left with a three two one composition for your next turn. I mean, uh, I, I'm not going to lie and say that um, I would, you know, I, I if it looks like I'm going to end up with a two 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 hand anytime soon, I will generally speaking throw the hand back, but I will throw almost any hand where I don't like like. Almost by instinct or by feel, if I don't like the hand, I'll throw it back. And sometimes it's not even a rational decision. It's just an emotional decision. I'll look at it, and depending on how well I know the deck, if I know the deck really well and it's just not clicking for me, it's not feeling like a winning hand or like a good way to get started with that deck, I'll just throw it away. The exceptions to this, of course, are decks that you know have like some trash in them and you kind of want to get them out of the deck in a hurry so you can get to the good stuff. Sometimes I'll hold on to that. But if we're talking about just that particular composition, 3-2-2, would I hold on to it? Have to be pretty strong on the three, I think. Okay. That's a great point too, because if you know the deck, like if I know my deck... I don't even think about the composition of the houses. I think about the cards that I want. And if I don't have them in my hand, I mulligan. So that that's a good point about, about knowing your deck. Because I do have auto mulligans for decks that I'm a, like familiar with. But like if I'm playing sealed, I'm really looking for, especially if I'm going first, I'm really looking for what is going to help me the most turn one. And if that's a creature, like what's going to be best on the board or if it's an, an action or an artifact, like what kind of thing will, won't penalize me for not having anything else on the board at the moment. Like, cause any, anything that steals or captures anything like that isn't useful. So I think I, I look a bit more in the macro than uh, sorry, in the micro than the macro. Like the bigger picture is a is a better long term strategy. But if I have like a witch of basically any witch in my hand when the game starts, a three two two is it's a no brainer to keep. Mm. I see what you're saying because I was I was thinking as you were saying this, I was thinking that if you have a creature that you can put down as a threat, that's could especially when you're going first because you know your opponent cannot for all intents and purposes, use a creature right away on the board to take it out. They would have to have an action card in hand that is some form of removal. So sometimes it's like you your, your turn one play is posing a question and sometimes a hand is worth keeping just to pose that question and maybe throw your opponent off, which is a line that I will take sometimes and go, oh, you know what? This Dusk Witch throwing down right now really makes the opponent go, huh, all right, I guess I better deal with that. Or or a cowpay is, is my new favorite one actually to put down turn one because it really kind of stymies some of the things that can be can be done and uh, hinders your opponent's ability to cycle, which if they're across from you and made a decision on mulliganing or not mulliganing for that reason and kept a hand, not allowing them to play a certain number of cards could really hinder their ability to move forward with a game plan they had. And also, it can depend on how well the cards in your hand mesh together, even if it takes more than one turn. So let's say you have Star Alliance. There are so many Star Alliance cards, especially creatures, that help you mesh between the houses. So like, let's say you have mm -hmm. a Valjerico. Like, if you can play that first turn, if you have, well... I guess Valjerico falls along the lines of I like, probably keep no matter the composition of your hand. Yeah. But, I think most leaders do. <laughs> yeah, right. But uh, kind of like just in, in general, anything that allows you to use things from other houses or will give support to the 
creatures on their flank or things that will let you set up for a really good next turn, maybe an artifact in a house that lets you use things from other houses or anything really. There are so many combinations of cards that work well between the houses that really keeping them in your hand, even though it's a it's an ultimately bad opening hand might be worth keeping. Yeah. I I mean, to build off that oftentimes, you know, I will always bring any conversation back to Quixel decks, still my one true love. (laughs) Um, But, you know, if I'm playing a Quixel deck and I get a Quixel stone in my first hand, I'm keeping it straight up. Like, you know, barring most scenarios, I'm always going to keep that hand, even if the rest of the hand is complete bunk, because my strategy with that deck is more often than not, get this piece out and then follow through with the way the rest of the deck operates around it. So when you get those sort of key piece cards very early on, it can be a drag if they're paired up with a bunch of trash that doesn't really fit with it. But at the same time, sometimes, you know, that's just the way that the the cookie crumbles. When you said that, Alex, that was, I'm glad you mentioned that specifically. You going into the Quixel route, which was so uncharacteristic of you, was exactly (laughs) what I needed for my next part, because I think that artifacts that are key pieces to your deck's game plan are very much like it's literally becomes I have a an artifact in my hand. Whatever else in my hand is the most irrelevant thing, no matter how good it is. Mm. It becomes irrelevant. Like you could be have like one of your key artifacts in hand and then like a too much to protect which is let's be honest that's that's a pretty good reason to mulligan having too much protect in your opening hand is a good reason to mulligan so when you have that artifact those key ones and i mean there there's a lot more that exists in the game now than i think existed earlier on like just off the top three that i can think of is like you said quixelstone having dav having uh, auto encoder are all ones that are really like if you have that in your opening hand you know you are off to the races mm-hmm. and so it and changes everything totally a hundred percent and one of the the points i would make is just that you know certain decks uh, you know if you're if you're playing heart of the forest you know uh, first of all what's wrong with you but second of all <laughs> uh, you know the, the uh you will know what the ideal opening hand is for for your deck if you're the kind of person who sort of builds spends time with a very specific strategy deck has put the effort into playing it multiple times in multiple scenarios and you know there's very few scenarios in which you want to hold back on artifacts you know artifact is almost always if it's a key artifact to your strategy almost always a keep you might not put it out turn one but you want to know that it's not going to be at the bottom of your deck Yeah. And Blake, I want to jump off something you said about uh, too much to protect. In general, a lot of decks have pretty key cards and cards that you might not want to see in the beginning of your game. And so mulliganing, if you have them in your opening hand is totally obvious, but if you don't have them, even if your hand isn't the best, like you have to weigh, is it worth risking having the fire in my opening hand and getting rid of it or holding onto it for multiple turns until it matters or just dealing with this opening hand knowing that I don't have that that fire card when I don't need it yet? 100%. I mean, that was going to be my next point I was bringing up is like what you know you don't have is sometimes worth keeping. Like you may not have some of the pieces you need, but knowing you don't have your late game winning pieces also is a reason to not mulligan 
Like that's, that's also the flip side of this. Like when you should mulligan, but when you shouldn't mulligan, I think is just as valid of a conversation to be having because I know there's like some decks I have where there's certain things I'm like, there's like one in particular I have where I'm like, okay, if I get this house late game, I know that I'm going to struggle to meet the objective of winning. But early on, it does a lot of amazing things that set me up for the latter part of the game. So if I have my hand full of this, even though it may not seem like really potent plays early on, the knowledge and the understanding that these cards will not be coming in the end game makes me be like, oh yes, this is 100% a keep, even if it is a 2-2-2, because it could be the other cards are also not key pieces. So it's it's more interesting almost to be not mulliganing because of the thought process of the way your deck could work. Totally. And I also think jumping off of what sparked this conversation in the first place, the the composition of the types of cards. So not just the houses. So the the houses yeah. are set like you're you're looking at three two two and you're like, ugh, this is gross. But like, do you have all creatures, or maybe you have mm-hmm. two or three of your artifacts that getting out early would be great? Or like, maybe you just have upgrades, and then it's like, well, even if these are the best upgrades, if I don't have creatures to put on them, yep. so the the types of cards also factor heavily into whether you should keep it or not. Yeah, I mean, it keeps for me um, can vary. Uh, it ha- has that same emotional component. Oftentimes, if it if it's a deck I don't know well, if I haven't played with it a lot, if I'm playing sealed or if I'm playing just a random game on on the Crucible, um, or you know, if it's just a deck that I haven't played in a long time, and you know, I sort of have a vague understanding of what might be good and what might be bad. So often, just it's that same emotional feeling for me of just. Does this seem like it's a good opening hand? Is it going to, you know, uh, set me up a little bit to try and really start stretching out and doing some stuff? And, you know, it's difficult for me oftentimes to, to, without playing a deck 10, 12, 15, 20 times to really truly get a feel for it. I don't necessarily have the skill set that, say, for example, you know, you have Blake where you can pretty readily identify what a deck wants to do and then refine your understanding of that over the course of, you know, four or five games. It really takes me a long time to get it. So I oftentimes make just like that emotional decision outside of obviously disqualifying factors like, nope, you know, six upgrades is useless or, you know, (laughs) this 2-2-2 hand ain't going to get me nowhere. Um, You know, it, it is oftentimes just sort of looking at it and going like, yeah, I can work with this. And, uh, you know, I'd like to have the six cards in my hand. I'd like to be that deep into my deck. As much as you mentioned the sealed prowess that you seem to think I have, um, <laughs> I would say that I probably always in sealed go for play the most of a house that you have. Like, you know, the classic bouncing death quark delta theory, like card plus board equals house that I'm calling most likely and try and play as much as possible. I generally like to do this cycle to see things coming. Because as, as much as you see things that you're familiar with, there's sometimes things that will happen that until it's right in front of you and you're like, oh, I can do this because your opponent's situation that they're creating also influenced the way you could be doing something. It can cause me to to even just be like, okay, I got to mulligan this because it is a 2-2. doesn't matter how good the cards are unless it's a leader. Uh, I'm just going to mulligan this. There's obviously quintessential turn one cards that exist in the game that we all get to have experience with that can also change this whole conversation because those cards are just like yeah i kind of need to play this 
if it's in my hand, turn one, because I'm going to get the most value from this card more so than any other time. And obviously, we talked about the leaders, like a Zenzi or a Valjerico turn one is like, and like you're obviously going to keep that. The, the upside is too huge. And same with like Eureka or Archon's Callback. Like those ones there are just such strong turn one cards that the benefit that they provide far outweigh the detriment of whatever else could be in your hand. And mm-hmm. I think that's always an interesting component that exists. On the note of of caring what your opponent does, we all know that in in like tournament play, like the first player chooses to mulligan first and the second player chooses whether they mulligan after the first player has chosen. But in casual play, like I know like when I'm playing with my friends or at my local game store, I just look at my hand, decide and then do it or not. And we really don't have like much interest in whether the opponent does or not but in in more competitive play does it matter to either of you two what your opponent does or that your choice has to come before your opponent i mean not at all i I don't see how what they do would influence me to change my hand in any shape or form i mean i understand the decorum just for the sake of having rules but i think it's one that is is very much irrelevant i don't think if i threw my hand back I, I mean, I let's put it this way. I love to see when my opponent throws the hand back, so that means they didn't have what they needed. <laughs> so that's that's always good, but I don't think it influences me changing what I was going to do. Agreed on that 100%. Like, I, obviously, you know, we, we like rules and we like following the rules because it's every player's responsibility, I think, to maintain sort of like a game state but in a casual game or whatever who cares and honestly you know what my opponent does doesn't really impact me before the game starts mm-hmm. you know if they want to take an extra moment to to do something then that's cool you know if they want to if they jump the 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 queue a little bit then that's fine by me on on that exact note of whether you're like if your opponent throws it away you you feel a little bit better like in a, in a very competitive tournament setting I am more likely to lean towards keeping to not give my opponent that emotional edge like I don't know why oh. it, it's it's probably like subconscious but like I lean towards keeping so that my opponent doesn't think they have the advantage off the bat because that confidence boost is definitely something I get when I'm on the other side of somebody who is uh, mulliganing. Interesting. I, I like that a lot. And uh, I'm all about the psychological warfare. So I'm going to start thinking about that a little bit more. <laughs> oh, man, I hadn't even thought about that aspect of it. Um, let me ask you this question. And I think this kind of relates to, to something that we were talking about. Um, do you like to when you see um, a lot of complementary cards, even if they aren't necessarily um like, do you like to play out uh, good complementary hands, even if they aren't the greatest? Like, do you just like to go deep into your deck? And what I mean by that is, like, if you've got, say, for example, um, a hand that's going to enable you to draw a couple of extra cards next turn, or a hand that's going to enable you to get a bunch of cards out of your hand, like, you can play four cards, but they aren't the four best cards. Is that something you're likely to keep just to, like, jump deep into your deck from turn one or you know does that really factor are you looking more for composition than you are for just the ability to play a bunch of cards 
Sorry, I phrased that very awkwardly. <laughs> in, in fun games, I absolutely will keep like the weirdest, awkwardest hand if it's like, if I play this this turn and this survives and X happens and Y happens, then maybe next turn Z will be able to happen because I play this card from the other house. Like the, the weird, awkward stuff is super fun for me, especially if it's contingent on lasting a whole turn. So would definitely need more than one house in my hand. But if, if that is something I can pull off, I totally will. I'm big on keeping a 2-2-2 two, two, two hand. If I have two creatures in the same house, I can lead off the game with, so I'm not going first, I'm going second. And then I can drop both of those down. And then ideally, I would like to use them again. So I'm actually hoping that I will draw another card from that same house. So as long as Ooh. I get one more card from that same house, I will be inclined to go into that house again, provided my opponent doesn't disrupt the board. And then... Would that allow me to also be staying in that house, hopefully get the effect that is doing something that is going to advance in some way, whether it's cycling, um, generating maybe Ember in a really fast way, or just creating a general threat that needs to be considered, uh, and then call it again, and then hopefully I'm going through that house a little bit more. Like I honestly don't mind having a 2-2 hand, 2-2-2 hand. And then drawing two cards of the house I just played, like that is actually the most ideal thing. That will make me 100% call that house back to back because then I know that I'm depleting that house faster and then I can keep going. That's a big reason of which I'll keep a 2-2-2 is to allow myself to maybe stick with a house and call it a few times and hopefully keep drawing at least one from that house and just incrementally going down, especially when I know the other two houses are much stronger in the late game once things are set up. Cool. So I guess to kind of wrap up this discussion, I think it's safe to say that there is there is no set way to really do mulligans. There's just what feels right based on what your deck does or what your emotional state in Alex's case, dictates you should be kind of <laughs> leading towards. And I mean, I get I get the emotional thing, Alex. Sometimes it's a gut feeling. Like, you know what? I think I should keep this hand. It's just like a feeling and you go with it. I mean, a lot of, I would say a lot of Keyforge players probably don't do that because I know it's a lot of people really run the numbers on certain things and love the statistics that can go along with it. But there's really, I think, no right or wrong answer to whether you should or shouldn't at any given time mm. mulligan. It has to do with so many different variables. And a big one that we didn't really talk about is when you look at your opponent's deck list and there may be a card that is such a strong threat and you open with the answer in your hand and you know that you lose the game if you don't answer that threat. So I don't think there is really, at the end of this all, there's not really a right or wrong way to do this. It's just <laughs> what is right in the situation that is currently in front of you and that will always be a multitude of different things with different factors that need to be considered the joke we always say is any question in keyforge can be answered by it depends it always <laughs> depends it depends yeah. on the game you're playing the scenario you're in the deck that you're playing whether it's a casual or competitive game you know all sorts of other factors there's a million other factors but always that's what makes it interesting if there was always a set answer there'd be no podcast for us to have indeed indeed right on can't end an episode of help from future self without the titular segment help from future, help from future self. self sydney you've got an oldie but a goodie for us 
I sure do. So this oldie but goodie is read your cards. So <laughs> there are two cards that came out in Coda that graced us again in Mass Mutation that since coming out in Coda, they both got upgrades, upgraded cards. So basically new versions of themselves. And I guess I'm I'm doing a trivia right now. And But the first version of both of those cards had chains. They gave you chains. And in Coda, that was super, super rare. And even in Coda, I sometimes had issues remembering to get the chains. But now, since so much has come out and new versions of those cards have come out with without chains, I I have such a hard time. Like I know effervescent principle so much. Like I, I don't need to read the card except it comes with a chain when submersive principle doesn't and mm. uh, gateway too. So like that comes with three chains when I, my brain just for some reason thinks two and unlock gateway. It's even though it's Omega doesn't come with chains. So I, I have to remember to read the cards, especially the Coda cards. And now that they they came back out of mass mutation, I have more of them in decks that I'm playing. So it it has to like it has to be something you keep doing when it it doesn't immediately come to mind exactly like oh I need to add a chain after I played effervescent principle. That's a good one. I like it a lot. Um, I, I think it also raises an interesting point, which is that chains didn't used to be a huge big deal in Keyforge. Like it was a mechanic that was introduced and it was kind of just sort of thrown out there as the this is the equalizer if you're playing two mismatched decks in terms of their strength. And then like the cards that threw chains on, like it was it was probably two sets in before we even really understood how chains worked without having to look it up every single time. At least it was right? for me. And so it's a very different scenario now than it was then, especially for cards that you know you 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 know hadn't really thought about uh, you know since their original printing. You can find us on Twitter at HFFS Podcast. You can find me on the Crucible at Scuzzy Gruen. Sydney, where can they find you? I am SC Steel on TCO and Discord. And Blake, where can they find you? And what have you got going on? You can find me on Discord, Boulevard Blake, number sign 3840. That's BLVD Blake, as well as my YouTube channel and Twitter. And the French AOA has been a success. People seem to be into it. It will be coming if you want to get your hands on some cheap French AOA, like around $10 a display cheap. Uh, hit me up. There is actually limited quantities on this, and whoever pre-orders first will get first dibs on what's available. So send me a message, hit me up via email, all in the show notes. <laughs> we'll be back at you again next week with a classic segment with a new twist. Looking forward to it. Until then, stay fortunate.